It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. Good evening and welcome. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, July the tenth, twenty fourteen. Welcome to our study tonight. My name is Greg Gwynn. I'm one of the regular hosts of the Virtual Bible Study. I'm not sitting in my normal chair. I'm, I'm sitting in the driver's seat tonight, Monty, and so uh, you'll have to help me out because I have to pay a little bit of attention to the switches. Monty Overton is sitting in my usual chair. Monty, welcome to the study. Hello, Greg. It's good to be here. And Jeff is behind the controls tonight, and we'll be getting input from him as well. Jacob is out of out, what we sometimes say, he's out of pocket tonight, so he's not in his normal place, and so we're going to try to muddle through without him. He usually, usually the one that takes care of a lot of the technical issues, but we'll try to manage that tonight ourselves. We thank you for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, and we seek your input uh, as we discuss important topics from the Word of God. We always think that our discussion is better if we get participation from our listeners. The way you can participate is... Uh, well, there's several ways. You can call us. Uh, toll-free number is 877-381-4567. You can send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Remember, College View is spelled peculiarly. It's C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E, collegeview.com. Send us a, an email to questions at collegeview.com. Or you can get into the chat room in the in the uh video window where we're speaking to you just underneath that uh, on your screen is a chat room and you can join in the chat room several are in there already we're looking for more to join in and get busy discussing things in the chat room uh, you can give yourself uh, a name uh, it can be your your real name or a pen name uh, and so we can sort of identify who's making comments in the chat room join in there again we look forward to the discussion and hope you'll participate Tonight we have what we think is an important subject that we have not dealt with very thoroughly uh, in in quite a long while on the virtual Bible study. We think it's a really important topic tonight. We want to talk about the organization and work of the church. Uh, this is really important, Monty. It's important for us to know so that we're following accurately the scriptural pattern for things. I think it's important for us to know because very few people in the religious world are, are paying any attention to how the church is supposed to be organized and what work it's supposed to be doing. You know, if we don't know what our organization is supposed to be like, then we can't do the work that we're supposed to be doing. And equally, if we don't know what work we do have authority to do and don't have authority to do, then it doesn't matter how well we're organized or how, what type of organization we have. We're still not following the pattern and accomplishing what God would have us to do. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's so important for us to, to understand that God God has given information on this. We've not just been left to our own devices. It's not just something where we uh, have been left to imagine what we think might be the best way to do things. He's explained to us in his word, given us information, direct revelation as to how the church is supposed to organize and function. You know, and it's so important to follow that pattern that God's given us, because just like we were studying last night in uh, Malachi, yeah, that's who he was, Mm -hmm. uh, he even went, God even went so far to say rather than doing worship the way that the Jews was doing at that time and not following the pattern, not doing things the way he wanted it done, he said, I wish somebody would just close the doors and stop people from even coming in here. Yeah. So God expects us to follow his word to the letter and do exactly what he said the way he said do it. So we, it's very important to know what our organization is supposed to be and what work we're supposed to be in accomplishing. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Are our levels okay, Jeff? We're looking you good? Need I need to come down a little bit. Okay. All right. Um, To our update list earlier today, we sent out this topic that this would be our subject for discussion. As mentioned in Damani beforehand, we may not get through all this this week. We may have to carry some of this over until next week. But to our update list, I always remind you that you can get on our update list by sending us an email. Just say, add me to the list. Send that to questions at collegeview.com, and we'll put you on our list. And on Thursdays about midday, 
we send out a notice about our topic, and today we said we're going to be talking about the organization of the church and its proper work. I always ask some questions and begin to seek feedback from our our uh, mailing list, and, and so here were the questions I asked. Number one, describe the organization of the church on both the universal and local levels. We're going to have to explain what we mean by that. Number two, we often talk about autonomy. What is that, and how does it relate to the church? Number three, concerning the work of evangelism, is there a New Testament pattern for the support of preachers? And secondarily, what are some of the unscriptural methods that churches have followed? Then number four, what is edification? And what are some of the unscriptural things that churches do in the name of edification? And finally, number five, what are the limits of the church's role in benevolence? Is there a difference between what the church can do and an individual Christian can do? And what are some of the unscriptural methods that churches have employed to do benevolent work? There's a lot of it. There's a lot to cover there. And as I said, we may may not get to all of that in our study tonight, but we're going to take a shot at it anyway. So let's start out by describing the organization of the church. Uh, you know, organization just means sort of a systematic arrangement of things. It's it's uh, it's a means by which responsibility can be assigned and operating efficiency can be achieved. If you had a business, you'd organize it. You know, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of that, I'm the boss over everybody. You know, most successful businesses have an organizational chart yeah. so everybody concerned can know where their proper place in the thing is. Exactly right. In fact, it'd be chaos if you didn't, and probably the business wouldn't survive very long at all. That being the case, we're not surprised to know that God and his wisdom would organize the church. He designed it. In fact, there's a a familiar statement made in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. It speaks to the intent that now to the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the church is a part of God's eternal design, and it's, it's representative of his wisdom. God is all wise, and we... If we understand the need for organization, surely he does, and uh, so he has organized the church. Uh, it reflects his wise design. It needs no alteration, changes, or innovations by human beings. Now, in the question we ask, what is the sense of the universal church and the local church? I think, again, I don't, I'm not sure that people in general in the religious world understand that kind of terminology uh when we talk about the universal church we're talking about the the one body of saved believers worldwide jesus said in matthew sixteen eighteen, i will build my church and so he, he he the lord intended to only build one church and all who are saved are added to that church upon their obedience to the gospel they are added to the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And so there's just one universal church made up of all saved believers. But interestingly, Monty, when we read the scriptures, there's no organization for that. There's no worldwide organization of Christians. You know, and as we read through the New Testament from cover to cover, start to finish, we never see where the universal church is activated or called or instructed or any example or command for the, for the universal church to do anything. I think that's a worthy point that we really want to sort of uh, we want to put an exclamation point on that because we want to come back to that. The universal church, we read through the pages of the New Testament. There's no organization. The Lord didn't say, now, over every region, I want a, a leader. And then over every super nation, I want a, the, the the regional leaders to nominate and appoint a a national leader, and then over all the nations, I want all those to come together and appoint one worldwide leader. You know, there's nothing like that in the in the New Testament. No description of an organization of the universal church. Now, since that's so, and since the point we made previously, if if an organization is going to be effective, it has to be organized. If 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 a if a body is to be able to effectively function, there has to be some organization. And the fact that God gave no organization to the universal church would indicate that he didn't intend for the universal church to be doing anything. You know, in the, in the 
New Testament and Old Testament both, there's condemnations for going beyond what was written. And so if we have an, some type of organization of the universal church, we've gone way beyond what was written. So we, we, we suffer the condemnation of God for doing that. Of course, the, 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 in the denominational world, it's very common to have a hierarchy of mm-hmm. organization. Uh, you know, they have their synods and their councils and their their national boards and, and their conventions. Of course, the extreme example of that is the Catholic Church with their hierarchy leading all the way to the Pope in Rome. All of that is without authority in the Scriptures. There's just none of that. But the point we want to stress here is since God gave no inspired organization of the universal church, then that would be a clear indicator that he did not indi- he did not intend for the universal church to be carrying on any functions, or he would have necessarily told us how to organize that. If we needed an organization for the universal church, God in his wisdom would have said, do it like this. Just like we can read the New Testament and see about organization in the local church, if we needed a universal church organization, he would have had it written down because he had a lot of other things written down. There's no limit to his ability of what he could have had inspired writers write for us, but he didn't write it. So therefore, we have to understand that we didn't need it. All right. So here's here's a, a red flag that we want to be waving. As we talk about things that the church might do, any effort to activate the universal church should cause us immediately to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, something's wrong. God never intended for the universal church to be activated, to to function as a body. All right, so let's keep that in mind. Now, when we talk about the local church, we're just talking about the, the, the saved believers that meet together in a given locality. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, Paul addresses the church of God which is at Corinth. Uh, so th- there's the city of Corinth. There were Christians meeting there. They were the church at Corinth. And so in that sense, the church is used in the local uh, means. Uh, we read, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, written down a few of these just by way of example. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, well, can't get my Bible open, money. Uh, he says, uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the church at Thessalonica, uh, another local body of believers. You know, as we read in Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, there's letters to seven individual churches there. And it starts out each one to the angel of the church at uh, Ephesus, or Ephesus or Sardis. Or Sardis. You know, there's seven of them. So we know that God recognizes individual Local, congreg- local congregations because he wrote to them. Yeah. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Mm-hmm. And so there's a local body of people, and they were organized there at Philippi. They had bishops or elders and deacons, mm-hmm. and then all the saints as well that were meeting in the church at Philippi. And so there is organization to a local church, and we're given information as to how men are to be appointed as elders, what their qualifications would be, deacons who would be assigned special roles of service in the church. And so the local church is organized, which suggests it's supposed to be doing stuff. Yeah. But the universal church is not organized and therefore should not be doing things. Any plan of work that requires the activation of the universal church is unscriptural, but on the other hand, all of the work that God expects the church to do, and uh, it it can uh, and must be done through the local church. And when you think about it, with this plan and organization that God has set in place, during the first century, the whole world was evangelized. They didn't need any greater. That's a great point. They didn't need any greater organization. They didn't need no world head leaders. They didn't need any regional leaders or anything like that. They accomplished that. Exactly the work God wanted done. They evangelized the whole known world in 30 or 40 years' time or 50 years, however long the apostles lived. I'm not 100% sure about that number right now. But they did it without anything other than local congregational organization. Excellent point. Colossians 1.23, Paul spoke about the gospel which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Uh, so within that first century time frame, they were able to accomplish that. 
a lot of people today would say, we got to organize on a grander scale because just expecting local churches to do all this work, you just won't get it done. They did it 2,000 years ago. Exactly right. They and they did. didn't have airplane. They didn't have Internet in the virtual Bible study and still managed to get it done. I think that's exactly right. Good point. All right. So we've talked about the organization of the church. We want to spend a little time on the question of autonomy. We're going to do that when we come back from this first break. We're going to take a break, and uh, we want you to stay right where you are. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? Here are some quotes worth pondering. A slip of the foot you may soon recover, but a slip of the tongue you may never get over. Never ruin an apology with an excuse. A false friend and a shadow attend only while the sun shines. Man, wish I'd said that. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And we're back on the virtual Bible study. We're looking for your involvement and participation with us tonight as we discuss what we think is an important topic, the organization and work of the church. We're spending just a few minutes here at the start to hopefully get a good handle on how the church is to be organized. And we talked about the fact that the only organization we read about in the New Testament is the organization of local congregations of God's people. There's nothing more than that. There's nothing described in the in the scriptures that would organize the church at a bigger level than local congregations. We often use the word autonomous. Every local church was completely autonomous. Uh, Money, I think sometimes we use words that uh, might confuse people because they're not words we commonly use. Autonomous. Uh, The word autonomous just means independent, self-governing, not a part of a larger whole. And so when we say that every local church was completely autonomous, that's what we mean. When we talk about the church here at College View, for instance, we are not taking orders from some regional office or from some synod or convention that meets in some other place and then sends down rules and inform- and instructions as to what we're to be doing. We fill out reports and send them back and maybe submit money uh, to this larger governing body. We just don't do that. The church here at College View takes input from no one and and yields input to no other body. We are autonomous. Yeah, we're individual church. We're an individual congregation. We don't answer to anyone or any other group of people. Yeah. Now, as we said, it, that principle is widely violated by the denominations. And as we said, we probably, if you wanted the ultimate example, we'd point to the Roman Catholic Church. But, you know, interestingly, Monty, even some so-called independent churches, you know, every once in a while you see an independent Baptist church mm-hmm. or or we, we hear of some Christian churches or so forth. And they would claim that they are autonomous, but that breaks down when you find out that they are want to establish societies, you know, uh, uh, sort of super congregational organization, you know, several congregations coming together to conspire, to cooperate, to get a, to get something done by appointing overseers of a work bigger than their local congregation. They would try to wear the name independent, but they're not completely independent of one another. You know, when they when they start trying to do things with other congregations in that in that fashion to accomplish a greater work than what they can do on their own, they've given up their independence. They become a part of something then, so they're not free and independent as they would like you to believe. Yeah, yeah we're going to talk more about that as we go along. But uh, Jeff has got some charts up on the screen uh, that we're trying to use to emphasize our point. And we're saying every local church was completely autonomous. Every local congregation did its own work, which would include sending out preachers, supporting preachers in new fields, making up funds for benevolent work, exercising church discipline. Now, that's not an all-inclusive list. But, but what is interesting is, notice... Some groups would like to uh, organize in regards to sending out preachers, supporting preachers, taking up funds for benevolent work. And they would like to establish, uh, maybe surrender some of their oversight to a bigger or to a bigger overseeing board uh, uh, in regards to sending out preachers or paying preachers. And so some churches will surrender oversight 
to these higher orders of organization in regards to some things they do. But other things they do, they wouldn't want to surrender oversight. For instance, they might they might surrender oversight in regards to sending out preachers, but they wouldn't want to surrender oversight in regards to exercising discipline. Well, why not? If you can, if 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 this church can re- surrender its uh, organization to a higher body in regards to one part of its work, why couldn't it surrender to all, all of its work to that higher organization? Well, you would think they could, and if it, and if surrendering your authority or your uh, oversight of a work to this higher organization in one area, like evangelism, was a good thing, why wouldn't you want to do it in everything? Yeah. If, if it's good in fixing the problems here, let's do it in everything and make everything better. If it's if it's an efficient way to do one thing, why wouldn't it be an efficient right. thing to do, way to do all things? So, uh, again, uh, in regards to the, the local church, we're saying local churches should be completely autonomous, uh, and, and we hope that that word is understood. So we've covered the first couple of our questions, uh, how the church is to be organized, and it is to be independent. All churches, local churches to be independent of one another. We want to talk about what is the work of the church now. So if we got a, we've got a good handle on how the church is to be organized, what is the work of the church? Uh, we believe that the work of the church can be defined in three general areas evangelism, edification, and benevolence. Uh, those are the three areas. Now, we want pretty broad we want pretty broad definitions for those three areas because if you'll allow our definitions to be such that anything a church could and should be doing will fit into one of at least one of those categories. Uh, so if, if you'll let us define our terms fairly, then we're going to say whatever the church ought to be doing should be in one of those categories evangelism, edification, or benevolence. And we want to spend a little time with each one of those. We want to start out with evangelism. Now, I don't think that there's any uh, any argument from anybody that the church is supposed to be evangelistic. There's certainly authority for evangelism. Uh, we have the direct command of, of 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, that says the, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be promoting God's truth. I actually met someone one time that didn't feel like evangelism should be taking place. Is that right? As far as teaching converting the lost goes. Because they were of the Calvinist persuasion, and they believed if God wanted you to be saved, he would save you and send you to a church, and therefore you could be edified there. But they didn't believe in going out and trying to convert anybody. You know, some Calvinists... At least they was... I mean, they took the extreme position in that. But if you really believe that... That would be the proper position yeah. to take. Yeah, and that is the view of some Calvinists. Some of the purists mm-hmm. of Calvinists, or the I, I refer to them as the ultra Calvinists, who don't think that there should be any evangelistic yeah. work done. But uh, among our brethren, for sure, I don't think there's any argument no. over the fact that the church is supposed to be evangelistic. We know that the church is identified as the pillar and ground of the truth, as we said in First Timothy three verse fifteen. We know that the church has actually worked in those areas. Uh, Philippi had fellowship with Paul, Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5. Thessalonica sounded out the word, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. We know that local congregations were engaged in the business of spreading the good news uh, about Jesus Christ. And again, as I said, I don't think there's really any argument about that work of evangelism. That's typically not the issue that we have. The issue is how is that work to be done? How are we to accomplish that work? Is there an exclusive pattern that we should follow when we're doing evangelism? In, in, in uh, well, uh, more so, is it, are we just free to do it any way that we want? And the only way we can decide that is go to the New Testament, Monty. We got to look to the totality of teaching that is found in the New Testament. And to come to some conclusion, is there a set pattern for us to follow, or can we just do it any way we want? Well, I believe that as we study through the New Testament, we're going to find that there is a pattern that was followed. There's ways that this was done, and we can see how those ways were. And if we'll duplicate what they did, then we'll be what they were, and that's sound New Testament Christians. Okay. Let's go to chart number six, uh, Jeff. And uh, what we want to point out is that we think there is a pattern for how the churches did their evangelistic work. Now, we're talking about collective activity in evangelism. Um, I, I hope that that is understood. 
There's a sense in which, certainly which every Christian is to be in evangelistic. I'm supposed to be out there doing all I can. You're supposed to be out there doing all you can. On an individual basis, every one of us is to be active. But then there are works of evangelism that local congregations take on to accomplish. Um, and uh, when churches work in this realm, when they work as a collective local body of Christians, then there is a pattern set forth in the New Testament for how they are to do their work. Uh, this this chart that we've got on the screen right now suggests at least three different ways that we read about in the New Testament that preachers were supported, and it is it it establishes a a pattern for us to follow. In, in every instance, we find the, the direct support, the church supporting the preacher directly, having direct fellowship with with the preacher, the church who was providing his support, who were sending that fellowship. There wasn't anybody between the, that local church and the preacher receiving the funds. They were always in direct communication with, with one another. For instance, when a church has a, an evangelist working in their midst, uh, they obviously have direct support with him. That's the first, the, the, the first line on the chart in 1 Corinthians 9.14. Paul said, the Lord hath ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And so certainly a church can pay the preacher. That's the way we sometimes refer to that. Um, It is scriptural. It's proper. It's right. We know secondarily that a church could could have fellowship with a preacher working in some other field. And we know that Philippi, the church at Philippi, had such an arrangement with Paul in Philippians chapter 4. Beginning verse 15, Paul says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again to my necessity. So the church at Philippi had direct support with Paul. Uh, He mentions when he was in Thessalonica, they were sending money to him so that he could continue his preaching work. So here's a congregation. They're engaged in a work of evangelism. They're supporting Paul as he preaches at another location. They send money directly to him. No intervening agency, no middleman, no go-between. They had direct contact of support with Paul. And then one other example that's shown on that chart is that in some instances, multiple churches had communication with a preacher, a single preacher while he was working. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, Paul mentions 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8. He, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he said, I robbed other churches, plural, taking wages of them to do you service. So at least when Paul was at Corinth, more than one church was sending money to him to make it possible for him to do that evangelistic work in that location. Now, Best as I can determine, Monty, that's the only that's the only three examples we have of how churches worked from their collective treasury to support the preaching of the gospel, either paying their own uh, paying a, an evangelist who was working in their midst directly, one church sending to one preacher who was working in a, in a distant field, or multiple churches sending to that preacher who's working in a distant field. But always, in every instance, it was direct support of the church to the preacher. And I think that pattern is important because that also means they had direct oversight of the preacher and, and what was going on there and how he was using those funds, which is important because if God's blessed us in a way to be able to accomplish this work, then we need to be good stewards of it and make sure we're doing it properly and, and doing it efficiently. And we can't do that if we're having somebody else oversee the workforce. But these churches, every example that we find, they were able to oversee that work themselves, that what was going on. And, and make sure it was done properly. Exactly right. We have an email from Stephen, who's also in the chat room, and it's a rather long email. We're just we're just about to a break time, so I'm not going to appreciate Stephen your work in writing this up. And I, it, it's some things that are interesting. He, he he refers to how priests were supported under the Old Testament system. He sees a lot of symbolism or typology in the Old Testament support of preachers uh, of priests rather in comparison to the New Testament support of evangelism. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing that he references, First uh, Corinthians 9, uh, 14, 1 through 14, and that's the passage that included that quote we read earlier about 
God hath ordained that they that work of the gospel should also live of the gospel. And he sees a lot of patternism in the Old Testament leading to the fact that we should do that sort of thing in the New Testament. We appreciate your email, Stephen. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we want to talk about some of the unscriptural methods that churches have employed to try to do works of evangelism. I think we see a clear New Testament pattern, but folks have not generally been content to stick to that pattern, Monty, and we want to talk about some of those abuses. Okay. All right, we'll be back right after this. We're going to get this week's bullet point, and we'll be back after the break. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Welcome to Do You Know. This week's question is, when the children of Israel returned from captivity, how long did it take for them to build the wall of Jerusalem. We'll give you a few moments to think about it, and we'll be back after this break. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8 says, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? In this context, the Apostle Paul was addressing the use of spiritual gifts in the first century church. The illustration is an obvious one. In a battlefield situation, the trumpeter must give clear signals so that the soldiers will know whether to advance or retreat. While we no longer have the miraculous gifts Paul was discussing in that context, the principle of his illustration has important applications to many pertinent matters. We are concerned that uncertain sounds are emanating from many brethren. Just as the apostle explained, people will not be properly advised and their correct reaction to spiritual dangers will be lacking. For example, social drinking. Too often we hear brethren who express a disconcerting lack of conviction against all alcoholic consumption. They typically express it this way. I don't drink, but I'm not sure we can say that it's absolutely wrong to do so. These folks need to realize that their unclear warning will be taken by the weak and the young as a full license to drink alcohol. Good and positive arguments against social drinking are available. Use them and warn the people. Dancing. A preacher was reported to have preached a sermon about dancing, and at the conclusion he stated that everyone would just have to make up their own mind if it was sinful or not. You guessed it, all the young people rushed off to the prom. You see, his uncertain sound left them unprepared to make a right judgment. In fact, it empowered them to make exactly the wrong decision. Immodest dress. Again, we hear too many of our brethren expressing doubts about standards of modesty. They will be heard to say things like, I don't think you can draw any absolute lines. They mean, of course, that no one can say for sure if this is too short, too tight, too low cut, or so forth. The implication is that everyone must just figure it out for themselves. We deny it. The scriptures give clear teaching on what parts of the body must be covered to avoid nakedness. And, of course, modesty would keep one far away from those limits. Teach this and help folks, especially our young folks, know how to dress and act as God desires. We need clear and plain teaching and preaching. We do not need to hear uncertain sounds coming from our pulpits and Bible classes. To put it bluntly, if you don't know or can't be sure, please keep your doubts and reservations to yourself. On the spiritual battlefield, we need to hear clear and certain sounds. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the virtual Bible study. We're back with the answer of this week's question from Do You Know? The question was, how long did it take the children of Israel when they returned from captivity to rebuild the wall? And the answer is found in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15. That answer is 52 days. It took the, it took the children of Israel 52 days to rebuild the wall. Thank you for participating. And we encourage you to study your Bible so that you will be able to grow in the knowledge of God's word. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study. Jeff, thanks for that uh, little trivia quiz. I had that one. I got that one. Uh, appreciate Jeff doing that. Uh, give us a little challenge on our Bible knowledge. Um, we want to remind you that this virtual Bible study is brought to you each week on Thursday nights by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. If you want more information about the College View Church, we encourage you to go to our website, collegeview.com. You can find information there. You can find uh, articles, recent bulletin articles. You can re- find recent sermons that have been preached here. Lots of information about the church. We also want to remind you about an upcoming event that we have for anybody within a driving distance of Columbia, Tennessee. We want to encourage you to make plans to come on July 21st and 22nd. We're having what we're 
calling simply a community Bible study. Uh, it's not going to be here at, at, at our regular facility. We've, we've rented a, a public building near downtown Columbia, the Memorial Building, just two blocks west of the square on the main drag. Uh, easy to find. If you need more information, you can contact us, but I don't think you'd have any trouble finding that. We're going to have a two-night study of the very pertinent topic of homosexuality. Uh, Kevin Clark, who's an attorney from Birmingham, Alabama, is going to be here to lead us in this study. He's done a lot of study on the subject from both a biblical standpoint and also from some of the legal things that are going on in our society. First night, we're going to talk about homosexuality. What does God's Word say? Second night, I think, will be especially interesting. How should we as Christians react how should we be dealing with this topic and with people who are homosexuals in an increasingly tolerant age when we're expected to just tolerate that and have nothing to say about that? How should we be properly conducting ourselves? I think it would be a, a valuable study. We hope you can come if you're within a driving distance of Columbia, Tennessee. Again, it's uh, coming up week after next, July 21st and 22nd at the Memorial Building in Columbia. If you have questions, give us a call or send us an email. We'll give you more information. We're talking about the work of the church, and we're specifically talking about the work of evangelism. And uh, I've been busy enough here, Monty, that I haven't been able to keep up real close attention to the chat room. Uh, Guest Virgil in the chat room says, as a member of a denominational church, I have strong feelings both ways. There's a benefit to co-funding of evangelism. I also like the oversight that allows for a rogue preacher to be removed. I've personally seen small churches that the pastor was heading in the wrong direction and there was not a good way to have him rebuked or removed. I think uh, with all due respect to to guest Virgil who made that comment in the chat room, I'd have to somewhat suggest that that's exactly the problem. He sees a better way to do it than what the Bible reveals. And and I, I just think that's a problem, Monty. Well, part of the problem there is uh, he's referring to the pastor of an individual small congregation. Uh, every place that we read about elders, pastors, bishops in the New Testament for a congregation, it's always in the plural. There's more than one. And it's not referring necessarily to what we normally think of here as the preacher or evangelist, but it's talking about the shepherds of the flock, the, the designated leaders of the flock. And so... They've gotten away from the pattern of organization that we was discussing earlier in the New Testament. But as far as if what we're talking about, evangelism and, and supporting a preacher somewhere, if we're in direct control of that, if we're monitoring this, this preacher that we're supporting and we've got and we're checking on him, the easiest thing to do if he's becomes unsound in his teaching is don't pay him anymore. Yeah. I mean, and if we're a local congregation providing support to that person directly, as we've been talking about, when we find out he's not uh, teaching the truth anymore, it's easy not to write him another check. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We wanted to talk about a couple of unscriptural methods that have been employed through the years to try to, I suppose, I think people have in mind to improve upon God's plan. You know, just the idea of local churches doing their work, uh, both spreading the gospel in their local community, maybe supporting preachers who are going off to preach in other locations. Oh, I don't know. You know, they, the argument is that just that just doesn't seem efficient enough. It needs we need some organization. We need to get we need to get that built up on a grander scale so that we can accomplish this big work that needs to be done. I think that's the mindset that has provoked a lot of this innovation. One of the one of the things that men came up with years ago was the idea of a missionary society. And so what what a missionary society basically was and is, and there's still plenty of missionary societies functioning today, although most of them are not called by that name. We take some men who we believe are men of sound judgment, good, wise men, and we'll just appoint them to a board of directors. We're going to establish this missionary society, and we're going to get this this group of men to be the overseers of that, and they'll make decisions. In other words, churches will send money to this missionary society board, and then this board of directors of the missionary society, they're going to make decisions about sending money out. We're going to send this much money to that preacher and another amount to a different one, and we're going to we're going to be in charge of directing these works of evangelism. We're going to have control of the money, and we're going to have authority to tell preachers where to go and when, and, and we think... The argument was we think this would be a real efficient way to get the job done. 
Well, of course, the problem with that is it's completely unbiblical. There's not a hint of such a thing taking place in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, and, and there's just no authority for that. It's, it's, it's based upon the presumption that men could come up with a better plan than God did. But there's just no authority for that whatsoever. You know, it's always been amazing to me that men could think they could come up with a better plan than God did. We had the creator of the universe who in six days completely built, spoke into existence everything there is. And then if we understand the chronology of it properly, 6,000 or so years since he done that, we still haven't learned everything there is about the universe. We haven't even learned everything there is about our earth. We're learning new things about it every day. And for us to presume to know and come up with a better way than God did, it's just terribly presumptuous in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking at the chart that's on the screen, one of the problems we have with that is what we were talking about earlier, Monty, is an effort to activate the universal church. Mm-hmm. This is an effort to get all churches everywhere working together, or at least a number of churches from different locations working together to achieve a bigger work. And and so they're activating a functioning body bigger than a local congregation. Bigger than and separate and apart from. And a different organization altogether. You know, just as sort of a side note, uh, sometimes members of the Church of Christ are accused of being followers of Alexander Campbell. Once, every once in a while you hear people called uh, members of the Church of Christ called Campbellites. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really uh, acknowledge that designation because we're not followers of Alexander Campbell. And and we might point out that just as uh, as as a point of difference we would have with Alexander Campbell, Alexander Campbell was instrumental in organizing the American Christian Missionary Society back uh, around 1900. And he made the argument we need to be more efficient. He made the very argument that we're arguing against. We would have disagreed with Alexander Campbell about his participation in and support of the American Christian Missionary Society. So uh, lots of people have done it. Uh, we just think it's unbiblical. There's no authority for it. And it's, certainly, you couldn't. You could search the pages of the New Testament through, and you'd never find a hint of any such thing in the New Testament. You know, when you think about it, if we could find an example in the New Testament or a command for it or a necessary inference for it, then we would also have an obligation to do it. Yeah. But we can't find it, so we have an obligation not to do it. I think that's exactly right. Now, the next thing was was an innovation that came along almost within our generation, maybe a little earlier than our generation, Monty, but some some Christians decided, well, we shouldn't have a, a separate organization. We shouldn't have a missionary society. We shouldn't have this board of directors because we can't read about that in the Bible. Well, what we can read about in the Bible is elders. And so we want to put this work under the auspices of an eldership, and so they called it the sponsoring church. And the sponsoring church... Uh, other congregations would send money to one church that was the sponsor of a certain work, and the elders of that sponsoring church would oversee the dis- distribution of money and the and the sending of preachers and the and the and the decisions that were associated with the work of evangelism that they wanted to accomplish. I got some examples. I I just wanted to give you some examples of that sort of thing among churches of Christ. Several years ago, I lived and preached in Knoxville, Tennessee. We were there uh, at about the time of the World's Fair, just shortly after. We moved to Knoxville just shortly after the World's Fair had been conducted there in 1982. And the Churches of Christ had a booth at the World's Fair in Knoxville. And they sent out this flyer in which they were encouraging churches to send money to to uh, facilitate this this booth at the World's Fair. And here's what they said. The Churches of Christ World's Fair exhibit is being developed under the supervision of the elders of the Laurel Church of Christ in Knoxville with help from sister congregations and individuals throughout the world. In addition to reaching the lost with the gospel, this exhibit is bringing congregations of the Lord's Church closer together in a great new vision and purpose. And so there they actually admitted they were trying to organize this in, in a, a bigger way. And I think a key phrase there was a new vision and purpose. I don't need a new vision and purpose. Yeah. I need this 2,000-year-old one that I yeah. read about in the New Testament. Yeah. Here's another example from right here in our Middle Tennessee area. Uh, this is a flyer for the Marshall County Churches of Christ annual old-time tent revival. Uh, and the letter simply says, this comes from the Church Street Church of Christ in Lewisburg, Tennessee, Enclosed, you will find an advertisement for our fifth annual Marshall County Tent Meeting. Notice, 
This is an effort of Churches of Christ throughout Marshall County under the oversight of Church Street Church of Christ. Well, they, they admitted it. It's, yeah. it they, different churches in Marshall County, Tennessee, are sending to Church Street Church of Christ in, in Lewisburg, and those elders are overseeing this evangelistic effort. Well, where's the authority for that? Where's the, this, is a, this is a classic sponsoring church uh, arrangement. We're simply saying, where's the authority for? Where's the authority for the elders of the church there in Lewisburg to assume the oversight of something bigger than their own congregational work? And where's the authority for the churches who send them money to surrender the oversight of that money to that eldership to see about it? And then I got one more example. Uh, this is from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, the, and I'm quoting from this uh, publication of the Memphis School of Preaching. The Memphis School of Preaching is a work of the Knight Arnold Church of Christ and is under the oversight of the elders of the Knight Arnold Church of Christ. However, the magnitude of the work is such that no one congregation has the finances to carry on this great work alone. Although Knight Arnold puts in more than $300,000 a year into the operation of the school, it simply does not have the financial ability to carry the load of the school alone. Therefore, other faithful congregations and individuals assist in this work in a financial way. Now, they actually admit that they've taken on a work bigger than they're able to accomplish on their own. In other words, this is a work bigger than they're able to finance but they want to do it anyway, and so they're getting other churches to send them money. Those sending churches to surrender the oversight of those funds to the elders of this church so this church can take on a work bigger than that local church is able to accomplish on their own. Again, a classic sponsoring church arrangement. You know, one would think if they really trusted God and believed what he said, that if he wanted them to do this work, somehow through his providence, he would have provided them the funds to do it rather than them admitting we've taken on something that we're not able to do. God's never asked us to do what we're not able to do. If it was a work he wanted to do, they'd have been able to do it. Yeah. Uh, again, we notice that the sponsoring church violates, this violates clearly the, the principle of local church autonomy that we were talking about earlier, Monty. That's right. The, these churches now are not independent of one another. They are now interrelated. And some are giving up authority of their oversight to a church eldership that now is assuming an oversight bigger than their own local congregation. And it's it's a clear and open violation of local church autonomy. You don't see that pattern found anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, again, we would argue that this serves as, a, as an attempt to activate the universal church. And we said at the start, if you see that happening, that's got to be a red flag to you, a big red flag. You know, the Bible talks about fleeing temptation. Um, that should be something when you see that red flag pop up. Well, I've got to run the other way. I've got to get away from this because yeah. it's not scriptural. Exactly right. We're past time for a break. We're going to take our last break. When we come back, we're going to move beyond evangelism. We're going to talk about, quickly about edification and benevolence when we get back from this break. Stay tuned. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. I'm Larry Raspberry, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a question for you. Do you believe in parachutes? I suppose you do. You believe they exist? But that's not what I mean. There's a difference between believing something or someone exists and putting your confidence in it or him. One who has seen a parachute knows they exist, but has never put his confidence in one. Trying one on while standing on the ground isn't faith either. Going up in a plane intending to jump out with a parachute on is not faith in the parachute either. Opening the door at the moment of truth and gazing outside to the ground is not faith either. It is only when one jumps out the door, counts to ten, and pulls the ripcord that he has actually put his faith in the parachute. Many of you believe parachutes exist, but only a few have actually put your faith in one. Many people in the world say they believe God exists, but only a few put their faith in him for salvation by doing what he says. We'd love to help you in developing a saving faith in God. If we can be of assistance, please contact us. Send an email to questions at collegeview.com or call us at 877-381-4567. And thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. 
We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that children and teens only be allowed a total of one to two hours of entertainment media per day. Despite those recommendations, children between the ages of 8 and 18 are averaging seven and a half hours of entertainment media per day, according to a 2010 study by the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation. That information is from about.com. The Word of God says in Deuteronomy 6, beginning verse 6, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3.17. Now, back to the program. And we're back for our final segment on the virtual Bible study. Thanks for listening tonight. We're talking about the work and the organization and the work of uh, the local church. Uh, we think it's a very important topic. Uh, we hope that you are uh, able to follow along with the points we're making. We're trying to throw out some charts on the screen to help uh, sort of organize our study tonight. Uh, before we move from evangelism, Monty, in the chat room, I see that listener Stephen has, has asked the question about some of these examples we just gave about these congregations assuming oversight of a bigger work. He says, did they assume it or were they asked for their help? How would you respond to that? If someone asked me for help and I do it and I take on that task, whatever they want me to help with, I have re- assumed that responsibility or that I have assumed that work. I, I took it on myself. Now, whether, that, whether, yeah. whether I reached out and grabbed it and said, hey, I, I want to help y'all. I want to oversee this, or whether they asked me to do it, I have still assumed it. I still had to accept it. Whether you took it by force or whether whether it was was voluntarily given. You know, um, I I think you're exactly right, and I think that's sort of a moot point. It's wrong either way. So you're you're a married man. You're supposed to be the head of your household. But you could – how about you just surrender the headship of your family to your wife? Would it be all right for her to take it if you said she could? No, because no. it's violating God's command for exactly me right. to do that job. Exactly right. No, in other words, we hear this argument every once in a while about women preachers. Well, they're not usurping authority if it was given to them. Well, it can't be given to them. It's not God's will that they, they be well, given that well, first authority. First off, who would do the giving? If it's humans giving it to them, I don't have the authority to give it to them. I, I'm not the one that put in charge of who's supposed to do what. God did that. So unless God, through his word, the New Testament, the only information we have concerning God in the New Testament church is, is in the Bible. If we can't read about it in the Bible, it's not my authority to give to him. I can't give a woman the authority to preach. I can't give my wife the headship of our household because I don't have the right to do it. And neither can a church give oversight of its work to another eldership at some other congregation. Because they don't have the they right don't to have do the authority. I would go back to that question we asked earlier. If it's okay for them to give part of their oversight away, well, couldn't they just give it all away? Well, if no, it's a no, good thing to do it, they no might words, as well do it all. Let's, uh, here, here's, this, uh, here's this example of, of these churches are having uh, the fifth annual Marshall County tent meeting. And so churches throughout this Marshall County, Tennessee, are sending money to this one church in Lewisburg, Tennessee, to oversee that work. Could one or more of those contributing congregations just say, well, Here's all our money. Just take it all, and you know, you, you guys you take are, care of it. Yeah, you you just do what you you just do whatever you think needs to be done. We're just going to let you have oversight of all of our money. I think everybody would say, no, they can't do that. They they certainly can't do it. Well, why not? If, if you, not, why not? Yeah, if you can give them part of it, why can't you give them all of it? And I I just don't think that question can be answered. It's, and again, it's a question of authority. Do you have authority to do it? Can it be done? Sure, it can be done. But do you have authority, and therefore do you have God's approval when you do it that way? I think that's the question that's got to be answered. All right. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the hour, and, we're, uh, and I, I doubt that we're going to be able to cover all of this information. we we got two other areas of work of the local congregation. Um, we believe that certainly the important work of the church is evangelism. There's also the work of edification, and we ask the question, what is edification? We believe that edification is to build up and strengthen those who are already in Christ. That's At least that's the distinction we're going to put upon that word here. 
evangelism is to reach out to the lost, to spread the gospel to those who have not learned about salvation in Christ Jesus. Edification is to build up and strengthen those who are already Christians. We got an email from Ramona in Texas who defined edification as the instruction or improvement of a person morally or intellectually. And I think that's a, a good definition of what edification is. There's really no doubt about the fact that the church is authorized to act in the realm of edification. We have direct commands for it to do so, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. We have approved examples of the church doing things that would tend to build up those who are already Christians. For instance, the very first church in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, uh, uh, verse 42, Acts 2, verse 42 says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. Uh, so they were involved in things that would strengthen those new Christians who were in that church uh, in Jerusalem. So definitely the church has authority for edification. But now, uh, let's go to, uh, Jeff, let's go to chart 11. Uh, the work of edification, what's the issue? Every, everybody agrees that individual Christians can engage in a, a wide variety of social, recreational, entertainment activities. Uh, these might include things like, and we do this, money, ball games, picnics, parties, meals of various sorts, social visits of all kinds. We do that. Uh, and, and we acknowledge that Christians can and do benefit from doing such things together. The issue is not what individual Christians may choose to do on their own. The question is... May the church engage in sanctioning and organizing of social, recreational, and entertainment activities as a means of edifying its members. That's the question. In other words, I could have you over for for a ball game, or I could have you over for a meal. I can do that. I should do that. That's not the question. We understand the value in individual Christians functioning in that realm. The question is, can the church engage in sanctioning and organizing social, recreational, and entertainment activities for the members? And again, we've got to look to the New Testament to get to the answer to that. A lot of people would say, well, we're having this, we're having this softball game, Monty, because we really think it's going to build up the, the kids when they play softball together. You know, young Christians playing softball together, they'll be edified by the softball game. Well, when we think about it a minute ago, we said our definition of edification is to build up and strengthen those who are already in Christ. I don't really see how playing softball is going to build me up spiritually. I'll enjoy it. And if I'm with good quality people, it will help keep me out of temptation. I, and I understand that, but it's not really edifying me, I don't think. That's right. In the in the chat room, Stephen says having a soccer team is not evangelism. It's and it's not and it's not mm-hmm. even edification. It's not. It's you know, recreation. It's recreation. The Lord never authorized it. Where do, where do we read in the New Testament of church kitchens and fellowship halls and gymnasium and family life centers, trips to the amusement parks and so forth? Obviously, that's not in our New Testament. We got to have Bible authority for everything we do. No church ever had, God never authorized it. It perverts the nature of the church. We don't, I think that's important because the, the church is a spiritual institution. And that's what it's for is to help us train ourselves so that we can go to heaven and live in, in a spiritual state with God forever. And that it's not the nature of the church to provide for these physical things. That's right. I think it suggests that we don't believe the gospel is enough. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1.16. But I think some folks are. We, the gospel is yeah. just not strong enough, doesn't have enough power. Well, I've heard people actually say something to that effect. Well, if we can get them there to play basketball or whatever, this particular example was basketball because this particular church had a gymnasium in it, we can teach them about Jesus while they're there. I've never seen anybody playing basketball being taught about Jesus. Exactly. Running around there sweating and throwing he didn't a ball. Know, when they he got done, no Jesus done. When he got done with basketball, he didn't know any more about Jesus than he did when he started. No. Exactly right. Real quickly, uh, we're going to talk, Jeff, let's go to chart 14. We're going to talk about the third area of work of the local churches in benevolence, and that's, of course, to provide for the physical needs of people. Uh, there's certainly no question that the church has a role in benevolence. That's not the issue. But the issue is what is the work of the church? We're just going to briefly comment here. We're out of time completely. But look at chart number um, 18. Chart number 18 suggests every example we have of congregations 
spending their funds in the realm of benevolence, and in every case, it was to needy saints. We know that as individual Christians, we should do good unto all men, Galatians 6, verse 10. But the church, from its collective treasury, functioning as a body of believers, the local congregation only has authority to expend its funds for needy saints. Money, any thoughts on that? Well, we even know as far as that goes that there was examples given about certain class of people that was to be helped by individuals so that the church would not be burdened by it. In 1 so Timothy 5, yeah. The scriptures are clear that there are certain people that we can help. There are certain people that the church itself is not to be burdened by. And as you said, all the people that the burden of help from the church was to, to needy saints. It wasn't to the world in general. And I think we're, we're often misrepresented on that. But we're not saying that as individual Christians we should turn our back on needy people. I have a job as an individual Christian to help anybody I can. We're just talking about what's the church authorized to do as a collective body, and that is limited in authority to needy saints. That's right. The church was supposed to help the church, so to speak, and it's not really. We have we don't have any authority anywhere in the New Testament for the church to be helping anybody else. All right, we're just out of time. We had to really hurry through those last couple of points. We may want to expand upon those at some point in the future. The important the important work of the church is evangelism edification and benevolence the scriptures give us the information on all three realms how it should be done what's to be done we don't need to be inventing new ways to do what god wants the church to do money again if we do it differently we've gone beyond what the word teach and the scriptures are clear that people do that are going to be lost all right thanks for your help money appreciate it thank you Greg. Uh, thanks for those of you who've been listening tonight we appreciate your interest in the things we discuss on the virtual bible study we'd be interested in getting your feedback Send us an email at any time to questions at collegeview.com. Thanks to Jeff, who's been running the board. Had some extra work tonight to try and get our charts up for us, and we appreciate that and hope that those charts help somewhat in the discussion we had. Uh, until next week, we encourage you to read and study your Bible every day. Live by it. You'll never regret it. Look forward to seeing you next week on the Virtual Bible Study.